He was like, are you not concerned? Like, how how are you paying for this? And I was like, credit card, boo. Like, same way I pay for everything. And he was like, oh, my God, if I had known you had had this credit card debt and like this problem with spending, I would have never dated you. And I was crushed. (laughs) I was absolutely crushed. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to my good friend, Kirsten Saunders from Rich and Regular. And let me tell you, we're going to have a lot of laughs. With all that's going on in the world with COVID-19, I think we can all use a chance to laugh a little and talk about big, important things like money and independence in a relaxed way because none of us have this all figured out. It's a journey. But connecting with your money and overcoming emotional roadblocks in your finances can give you more options and greater freedom. As Kirsten describes it, her journey to finding financial security was really an act of saving herself from herself. What started as an act of social rebellion quickly became more purpose-driven. Kirsten aspires to use her platform, Rich and Regular, as a call to action that inspires other women to use money as a tool to improve their quality of life, build generational wealth, and become so rich that they can afford to speak their truth. Which, mamas, I just freaking love that and love getting to hear Kirsten speak her truth. As always, stick around till the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this episode, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Kirsten, K-I-E-R-S-T-E-N for our complete show notes. All right then, mamas, are you ready? Let's get started. Hey, Kirsten, how's it going? It's going great, man. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to have you here, and you have some big recent news. Yes. Want to tell us what's going on? Well, one, I quit my job. <laughs> and two, uh, we just signed a book deal. So Rich and Regular, the book is coming out in 2021. And we're super excited to like write it and get the word out. And you didn't sign like just a minor book deal. That's like a big <laughs> publisher you're working with, right? Yeah, yeah. We're working with Penguin. They're the world's largest publisher. Apparently, I haven't fact checked it, but I'm just going to believe them <laughs> when they say it. Not blowing smoke it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're super excited to have found like an editor that understands our voice, understands our mission and is completely aligned instead of trying to like remix it to what, you know, the market is currently asking for, you know, whatever metrics book publishers use. Absolutely. And so you just left your job to pursue this mission full time. So what's the mission? Oh, so the mission is to inspire people to have better conversations about money and as a byproduct of that, help create more black millionaires. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, thank you. So how has the transition been from quitting your job? Are you uncertain? Ooh, girl, how much time do we have? <laughs> it's been it's been rocky. There's a lot of I've been working very hard to like unravel my mind and like rewire my brain. And like that's the whole journey of financial independence. But like leaving your job and losing an identity, even though it was one that I prepared to lose has been interesting. Like I have to change my entire relationship with time and with busyness and like not just redirect all of the ambition of work into my home life. I've taken a lot of naps. (laughs) I can tell you that. (laughs) That's winning right there. (laughs) Yeah. I have not drinking as much water as I was supposed to, like as I should be. Like, I don't know. Everything's just kind of... How is that related to your work? (laughs) I don't know. Just not drinking water. (laughs) Yeah, I'm drinking other things. I'm definitely drinking wine and whiskey, but (laughs) like 
all of the habits I had at work, which was like go to the proverbial water cooler at our office. It was like a fountain, but whatever. <laughs> like all of the habits that I had to stay hydrated and refreshed at work have like completely left. Like I just, it'll be three o'clock and I'm like, gosh, I'm so thirsty. Like why am I so, and it's like, oh, because you haven't had any water. What are you doing? I do that all the time, by the way, of like it gets to three o'clock and I'm like, I'm cranky and my head hurts and I don't know what's wrong. And then I'm like, oh, I haven't eaten food or drank water yet today. <laughs> yeah, that's me. This is not currently a poster card for self-care. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I am like Miss Self-Care. Like I I had all of these re- regiments and like routines and I don't know what has happened to me. Like I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out. It's only been a few weeks. You'll figure yeah, it out. I, I'm giving myself some grace. All right. So you're helping inspire more black millionaires. You've got your mission. You left your job. Do you always have it all figured out? No, no, Lord, no. <laughs> no. Oh, besides the water, did you always have it all figured out? <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm in like year five of having it semi figured out. Maybe year eight, but the first almost thirty years of my life, I was in denial about everything and had a very wild understanding of how the world was going to work. I was just one of those like relentlessly optimistic, positive people to the point. Julian, my husband calls it toxic positivity. <laughs> it's like to the where you're so positive to the point where you're just not operating in reality. That was me and my finances for almost 30 years of my life. So were you just not looking at it or were you looking at it and just being like, hey, it's going to get better? Yeah, <laughs> both. <laughs> so, <laughs> so most of the time I wouldn't look at it, but there were times like if I got an insufficient funds notice or, you know, I started getting calls from like collectors that it was like in my face where I had to look at it. But even then I would just redirect any anxiety back to work to say, well, I'll just get promoted or, you know, I'll, I would count the months to figure out when I got an extra paycheck. Cause you know, if you're paid every other week, there's like two months out of the year when you get three of them. <laughs> so I would count the months where I would get an extra paycheck or some other type of windfall money, whether it was my birthday or Christmas or like tax time. And I would just say, okay, well, it's going to get better at that point. Like this is just a cash flow issue and not like an actual Kirsten, you're doing too much issue. So yeah, that whole, I can out earn my money problems thing, which just doesn't really work the way we think it's going to. <laughs> yeah. It works until it doesn't. Like for me, my mental math of like out earning did not include interest. <laughs> like it was. Oh, it was, that's like, a big problem. Yeah. It was calculated based off the sticker price and not like how that price changes over time. And so my purchases, especially like my car and like my credit cards, all of that stuff eventually caught up because the longer you have it, the bigger the balance goes, no matter how much you're throwing at it. So you've said before that when you were ready to make that shift and get more focused, you had to save you from yourself. And what did you mean by that? Yeah. So those that are familiar with my story, Julian, who's now my husband, but was my boyfriend at the time, was the person who kind of like shook me into reality, not literally, (laughs) but verbally (laughs) called me out about my credit card and my spending. And at the time, I just was following this narrative that, you know, you've heard your whole life about your Prince Charming was going to come rescue you. Like, I just assumed that my debt would just like roll into my marriage peacefully and we'd resolve it along with all the other things that you're supposed to resolve in marriage. And this was when we were dating. Like, we weren't even close to like being engaged. (laughs) Julian will fix it. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody, if it ain't him, somebody will fix it. Like, that's what men do, right? Oh boy. That's some deep stuff to talk about here. Deep stuff. Deep (laughs) stuff. Like, highly problematic thoughts on money that some of my friends actually still have to 
this day, which is really interesting that everybody doesn't evolve at the same pace. But yeah, I definitely thought that it would be something that I would be tackling with somebody else and not Mm -hmm. by myself with my own money, using my own math and resources. So what did Julian say to shake you out of this? We had just gotten back from a 10-day trip to Panama, and this was like super early in our relationship. So like the first couple of months when you're dating somebody new, you go out all the time, and it's just like the honeymoon phase. You're dating, you're going out. And so we went on this trip for 10 days, and we got back from the trip, and I was ready to like get back into the honeymoon phase, dating, going out, dining and drinking, all that stuff. And he was ready to buckle down and like pay for the 10 days. And so it led to this giant clash because I was not concerned about the trip. That was just one thing on the list of things that we do in the first three months. And he asked me how I was paying for it. Like, was I not concerned about the spending? Was I not? Because we were making the same amount of money at the same time. And uh, he was like, are you not concerned? Like, how are you paying for this? And I was like, credit card, boo. Like, same way I pay for everything. And he was like, oh, my God, if I had known you had had this credit card debt and like this problem with spending, I would have never dated you. And yeah, I was crushed. (laughs) Like (laughs) I was absolutely crushed and offended and thought he was just looking for a way out. Like I was like, something must have happened, you know, over the 10 days. Maybe he heard me fart. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, There's got to be. It can't be about the money. (laughs) It can't be about the money. Everybody has credit card debt. And I thought that was true at the time. And uh, after doing some more digging, he truly explained, like he was very patient about it, you know, after the anger passed. He was very patient about explaining his philosophy on finances and giving me a little more insight into how he grew up. And we just have very different opinions about security. And we grew up very differently. He grew up, you know, in poverty in Brooklyn. And I grew up in a two-parent middle-class household. And so just our views on money were just very, very different. And it was the start of our conversations and our approach to, you know, how we wanted to live our lives. How did those different upbringings impact both of your money stories? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for him, I'm going to speak for him first because I can do that. (laughs) It's easier. (laughs) His problem is, I'm just kidding. (laughs) For him, it definitely led to like a scarcity sort of mindset. When he gets Mm -hmm. money, he does not believe in wasting it. He's going to use it to the best of its ability. And that worked out really well for him. He made up some really smart investments early in his life, was very responsible with money. And so when he started making more money, like he could kind of snowball his way through, you know, all of these asset classes to build his wealth. For me, it led to this abundance mindset, but not in the right way, (laughs) abundance, because (laughs) it wasn't just a matter of like believing that there's plenty out there. It's like, there's plenty out there and honey, I deserve it all right now with no consequence or, you know, way to pay for it. And so for me, it, it led to just assuming that income would never be an issue, that I would always have a way to pay for whatever. And even when there were financial challenges, there was always not just one option, but several options to overcome it. And so I just didn't spend as much time thinking about purchases or even like my financial patterns as he did. And did your parents ever step in and actually kind of save the day to fix that story in your mind? Yes. The first time, (laughs) this has happened several times in my life. So the first (laughs) time I was 25 and I had just come back in state. After I graduated school, I went to work at another job in a different state. 
And then I just come back home to Atlanta and I moved in with my parents in the hopes of like paying down my credit card debt and getting ahead and saving money. And at the time I had $20,000 in credit card debt and I had just gotten a job with a $50,000 salary. And so I moved in with my parents. I was like, I'm going to save all $4,000 or $5,000, whatever it is, every month. And I'm going to pay this thing off really quickly and be out of your hair in six months. Well, two months in, (laughs) that was not the case. I had already started going out and like rebuilding my lifestyle in Atlanta without rent or without any major bills. Mm -hmm. And there was one day where I came home late and my dad and I got in a huge fight. And I just started like crying hysterically because all of the stress started piling up. And I told him about it and he wrote me a check two days later. And he was like, I don't want you to worry about, I don't want you to have this weight on your shoulder. Like, I don't want you to do all of this unhealthy coping mechanisms. Like he just, he paid it off and made me promise that I would be a good steward of my money from that point on. Did that work? No, girl. (laughs) No. I was going to say, that would be like the first time I've heard of this method working. (laughs) No, no. There there is a reason we are not called rich and rescued because that, (laughs) that didn't teach me anything at all. So yeah, I went right back into my patterns. Not immediately. Like at first I was really good and I saved a bunch of money and I had enough now to increase my credit score and get an apartment. I got a roommate. So I was like super, super responsible. But once I was, you know, once I got another job that paid a little bit more, I was back into my habits of buying the things that I want instead of dealing with the actual issues I was having at the time. So I'm curious, have you and your dad ever talked about that now that you're in a better place? We're going to talk about it because I'm writing about it in the book (laughs) because I really want to understand his motivations. Like, And I want to know where the money came from. And ideally, I'd like to pay him back. I don't know that he would take it, but like... I want to know from a parent's perspective, when your adult child comes to you, you know, struggling with money, my parents aren't like super wealthy. I'm not, you know, I'm not a Winfrey. <laughs> Don't base us money. But. Yeah, I'm not an Obama. Like they, <laughs> That money came from somewhere. And it's like, did you pull from your retirement? Like what was, you know, what was going through your mind when you did that? And I'm not even sure that I expressed the amount of gratitude that I needed to or you know, I just want to talk through it because we've never really spoken about it. It's just one of those things that, you know, we've avoided over all these years. And do you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older brother. Have they had the same experience with your parents and money? Yes. he. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I'm like crying into your family life here. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> His are on a smaller level. So him and my parents are super close. They live like 0.2 miles away. Like they're basically neighbors. And so they see each other often. And the amount of times where he's like used their credit card to get takeout or like got an Uber on their dime or, you know, they just have a it's kind of like like communal living where they just kind of throw all of their money and resources into a pot, whether it's groceries or money or cars or gas. Like they kind of just share resources, which is not a bad idea. Like there was a time where that worked really well for families. And we probably need to return back to that given. Yeah. The multi-generational house is yeah. really died off in a way that I think has hurt a lot of families. Exactly. So yeah, his is not so like, I need a bunch of money right now, but it's more like what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. Gotcha. All right. So earlier, interestingly, you said Prince Charming was going to come save you. And I don't know if you know this, but are you familiar with Barbara Stanny? No. So she was one of the first women that really wrote about money for women. And one of her first books was called Prince Charming Isn't Coming. Mm. So when we were prepping for this episode, 
I found a quote from her book that says, we deny our potential power projected onto a person or thing, real or imagined, which becomes the prince who will save us. When we finally do recognize the prince inside ourselves, we discover we have access to all those princely qualities we thought we lacked. So true. And so I want to know, so you had these conversations with Julie and you started to get more information about money management. What were the first steps you took to change those habits, right? Because you talked about how there were moments before where you did the right thing for a couple months, but then slid back. So how did you make the permanent change? Ooh, there were a lot of steps. So first I went cash only. I cut up all of my credit cards, put them in the freezer, like in a big <laughs> ice block. Like I was really dramatic. <laughs> I needed very physical like reminders that you have a problem. So I went cash only and then I went paper and pen. So I didn't use an app at the time, at least not initially. I eventually transitioned to Mint, but I used paper and pen and I would literally write down how much my check was going to be and like where the money was going well before I got the check. And then the minute my direct deposit hit was the minute I started moving things around. Okay. I would write myself these letters to open like a month from now or three months from now that would remind me of the milestones that I said I was going to do. So if I said, okay, a month from now, you're not going to have your credit card bill anymore. I would write myself a letter that says open on May 1st. And it would be like, Kirsten, girl, you did it. No more credit card. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It was like my own way of holding myself accountable because you didn't want to open that note and like see that you lied to yourself. I needed to make the lies that I was telling myself like super visible. Yep. So I did that. And then I moved, I broke my lease. Before when I would have windfall money, I would use it to like catch up on bills. This time when I had windfall money, I used it to break my lease and move into a smaller apartment that was like, like a fourth of the cost. So it was in the suburban area. It was like a couple hundred square feet. I mean, it was tiny, tiny and a strong like distance from my high rise midtown apartment, but it was what I needed to do to lower my expenses more permanently. And those four things combined with just like continuing to throw money at my debt is what eventually got rid of all the consumer debt. And what's going on in your and Julian's relationship at this point? You guys are still just dating, right? Yep. We're still just dating. He's there, supportive along the way. He's doing a lot more cooking at home <laughs> because we <laughs> we agreed that, you know, we would only go out, you know, maybe once a week, like on Fridays and we would pregame before we went out and like maybe eat a snack, maybe have some hummus <laughs> before we go to the restaurant. So you're not as hungry. Like we would have all of these little hacks that we would do to try and keep like our dating life down. And at the time he was saving up for his own goals. So he wanted to buy a rental property and he like wanted to renovate his bathroom. And like he had his own student loans and tax debt that he was in car notes that he was throwing um, money at. So we were both on a similar journey. It's just mine was new for me. And his was one that he's just like, oh, no, I'm happy to go back to eating at home and and hanging out. And let's be clear, mamas, this is not Julian making grilled cheese sandwiches. Julian is a chef. (laughs) It's not so painful to wait for Julian to make food for you. This is true. (laughs) My husband tries very hard, but he's not, you know, he's not a professional chef. (laughs) All right. I think there's a shift that happens for a lot of people where they, they get this hustle. They find the focus to get out of the debt. And then once they're out of the debt, there's this like letdown of I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. How did it feel when you actually got out of debt? And what did you do next? Yeah, that didn't happen to me for like two more years. 
because the time that I got out of debt was right around the time we got engaged. And so there was a whole list of things that we need to do to combine our life. So we got engaged. And then three months later, I moved in with him. And then we started combining our finances, finished off the last little bit of debt, and then started saving for like the wedding, the honeymoon, the house renovation. Like we had all these plans that we were going to do to start our life together. And so it wasn't until maybe two years after that, after we went through the full list, including like having a baby and paying off the mortgage and like all the stuff that I was like, okay, now what? (laughs) And (laughs) um, we eventually decided that we were going to buy a bigger house to accommodate our growing family. And that's when all of like the feelings set in, all of like the imposter syndrome, all of the, I don't trust myself with this money. Like, did we think about this decision enough? Because I've been in autopilot for so long of like paying for past decisions now that like it had caught up to the right time horizon. And it's like, okay, you are prepared to make a decision. You're making a decision for your present and your future. And my brain was like, Oh, we don't know how to do that. <laughs> we, we've never done that we've before. We've <laughs> never actually done that. We only know how to pay for things that you bought 10 years ago. <laughs> like, so it was a whole new muscle. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk about that next step, but first we're gonna take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Debt.com. One of my favorite things about Debt.com is that they remove the embarrassment around getting out of debt. If you're feeling overwhelmed by monthly payments or balances, but don't know who to turn to, Debt.com can match you with the perfect, trustworthy debt solution provider to help you create a debt freedom plan and build a strong financial foundation. You can learn more by visiting smartmoneymamas.com backslash debt or by calling their free support line at 844-462-8280 to discuss solutions for your unique situation. That number again is 844-462-8280, debt.com for when life happens. Okay, so you get married, you're starting to think about the future. The first question I want to go back to before we talk about buying the house is you talked about this like ingrained patriarchy, right? And thinking that some man was just going to come fix it. And you got better on your own, right? While you were dating. But once you got married, did any of that stuff start to come back up for you as you were combining finances? Yes, initially, because <laughs> because it also <laughs> because of the way that we were managing our money at the time, we were like at first before we got married, let me just back up. So before we got <laughs> married, the agreement was that I would give Julian half of like the household expenses. And at the time, I don't remember what the number was, but it was like half the mortgage, half the utilities, half the food and like some money for entertainment. And so that worked for a while where I was just like transferring a flat amount. And then as we got closer to the wedding and closer to the honeymoon where more expenses were like hard to split because we both benefited from them, or maybe it was for me, like, should he be paying half of my wedding veil? Like it just got harder. (laughs) We decided to combine all of the money, which into one account. So we are one of those like single account families. And that meant that he had access to like all of my transactions. And he would ask questions about why I was spending certain things and why things cost so much. And I would immediately feel defensive. I would feel like I'm defending my expenses versus explaining them to you. And these existed before you got here. And like hair removal is not free. Like that is, <laughs> that's what that is. Or like, you don't know, I need to throw like an extra blanket for upstairs because you keep it cold in here. But like, I'm not going to explain that to you because you're anyway. So it just led to like a lot of me feeling like I either needed to cut back to make my expenses match his, even though I have very different needs, 
or that like I needed to feel ashamed about the things that I bought for myself, for me only. Neither of which feel like good options. Exactly. Exactly. So how did you guys resolve it? Or have you resolved it? (laughs) (laughs) They're still fighting about the throw blanket, guys. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We kind of resolved it in that we ring fenced a certain amount of money in our budget that just was like, I don't know. I th- think we called it personal, which is on on brand for me. But it's just like this amount of money where it's like as long as whatever I spend on whatever it is is under, you know, $400 for the month and making that number up, then there's no questions asked. Like the only time we need to discuss it is if it is swinging, you know, 30% over what we allocated. But like the individual transactions, you don't need to ask me why it costs me $36 to get my eyebrows threaded. And you don't need to ask me why my hair appointment was the amount that it was. Like you just need to know that these fall within the personal category. That's something my husband and I went through too, because we had equal kind of spending money, like free money, except mine with haircut and hair removal and all that kind of stuff, like got eaten up really fast. And then his was like, he didn't spend any of it anymore. And we had to like finally make a decision that like mine should be higher. And that's not unfair. And this was a weird thing for us because I was the breadwinner. So I felt like I was being unfair to him by asking for more of that money. Yeah. It was this whole process before we were finally like, that just category just needs to be higher. Yes. That's what we went through. And I was like, and not even like a little bit higher, like double. (laughs) Because he doesn't spend any money. Like he had gotten to the point where he was only getting haircuts like once a month. And like, maybe he might buy a new belt. But like, it looked like I was like this loose and wild spender. And I was the breadwinner too at the time. And, you know, like, I just felt like I couldn't ask for what I needed, even though I worked hard for the money and that I could completely justify the expenses. And it was a whole process. Yeah. And I think that that's something we talk about a lot, right? Where it's just, there's no overnight fix to any of this stuff. It's like, you're going to fix one thing and then something else is going to come up and it's just got to keep working on it, I think. A hundred percent. There is no destination. (laughs) That's what I'm, that sounds morbid, but it's all journey. Like it is all journey. Well, it is right. And we can't like, money is just part of our everyday lives. It's not like we can finally be like, oh, we don't have to think about money anymore. (laughs) Unless we're in a real dystopian situation, I guess. But yeah, okay, so let's go back to the house. That was a weird tangent. We're not going to go down that road. But the house. So now you've got to make a decision about a house and more space, which is just a big thing. So how did you decide what kind of house you wanted, what your budget was, and what made sense for your family? Yeah, so we originally created a number in our head. It was pretty arbitrary, but probably based off some rule of thumb where it's like, if they'll give us three times our salary, then we'll only spend one and a half times or something like that. And so we did a filter on Zillow, or I think it was Zillow, yeah, one of the home buying apps, and just started looking at houses. And we would find that like within the price point that we had set arbitrarily, which again was well below what we could afford, the houses that we were seeing either were missing one element. Either they had a ton of space, but we didn't like the format, or we didn't like the neighborhood, or it wasn't near like a grocery store, which is really important to us, or like a park for our son. There were just like a lot of things that we were trading off and we were fully prepared to trade off, but we felt like if we paid just a little bit more, we wouldn't have to make as many Mm trade-offs. And so one of the things we did was kind of slide the bar up a little bit, (laughs) still not to the point where it's, you know, three times your salary, but a little more than like the very low number that we had originally started with. So once we slid the price point bar up a little bit, it took us to the neighborhood that we're in now, which is one that we always loved. It's got everything that we need from family friendly to great schools 
public libraries and green space and, you know, just really diverse. And so we started looking in this neighborhood and (laughs) there were two options. There was one that was like in one of those work play kind of development areas where you can like walk downstairs and get like Starbucks and, you know, Waffle House, (laughs) whatever else is down there. And then... Does it sound like you moved there? No. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're really unsure about your surroundings. Set on it. Like I really had my heart set on it. But then we drove literally one mile down the road and found another townhome that had everything that the other one did, except it wasn't like in a restaurant development area. And it was $120,000 cheaper. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, a mile. (laughs) And you know who still needed convincing? This girl. (laughs) I can laugh about it now. But at the time, like, I was just like, I don't understand why we wouldn't want to just walk to dinner. And Tulkin was like, you can still walk to dinner. Like, it's just a little farther. It's 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I still like, this is why I, I make fun of myself now because I want everybody to understand like it's not a switch like you have some deep wiring and programming in your brain and just because like you've built some new habits every once in a while there's like a trigger that like reactivates a path that you haven't been on for a while and it's like oh yeah that is still in there and so like my you know bias for convenience and luxury and (laughs) just everything being perfect came back during this home buying experience. And like that little trigger, the fact that I couldn't be convinced easily that saving $120,000 made sense, made me question everything. Plus interest on that $120,000. You're forgetting interest again. Plus interest, (laughs) plus like the fact that the other place had a bunch of stairs and I was carting around a toddler. Like it just didn't make sense. But like the fact that I struggled with the decision, as hard as that is to admit, made me not trust anything else. And so even when I was making the right decision, I was like, how do I know I'm making the right decision? How do I know this isn't just me, you know, going on another like spending spree? And so it was just a very difficult time coupled with like stressful times at work that, Mm -hmm. you know, was hard for me to get through. So I got to ask, did you develop tools to trust yourself and figure out when you were on the right path or were you looking to someone else for validation? I did. I don't know that I developed tools, but I started to use different tools. So I had moved past cash only and like writing notes to myself. <laughs> but <laughs> you unfrozen the credit cards out of the freezer? <laughs> I had melted the credit cards. <laughs> and I adopted different apps. So I started using Personal Capital, which is an app that like allows you to track your net worth. It's not so like budget centric. I started meditating and quickly stopped, but then recently started again. But (laughs) meditating, (laughs) meditating was a really good way to like see my thoughts and like just kind of swat at them like that Shaq meme where it's just like (laughs) that one doesn't make sense. That one I want to keep, but this one doesn't make sense. So I was just more mindful. Tinder for your thoughts. Yes. Somebody (laughs) should do that. Thought Tinder. (laughs) Please don't do that. I don't need all my thoughts popping up in an app. <laughs> Do not need that. <laughs> It'd be amazing. <laughs> so yeah, mindfulness, a different app, and then just like really focusing on like my communication skills with Julian, like trying to articulate and find the words and like send articles that like I would relate to and just like be really aware of when I was feeling something and tell him immediately and like struggle through a conversation. But at least I was trying instead of Mm -hmm. holding it all in and like letting it bubble up. Awesome. So what are your financial goals now? Because now you have the house, it sounds like. 
Yeah. And the crazy toddler. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to write a book. Yeah. But what's like the big money goal happening? Yeah. So the big money goal is saving up our ramp, finishing our ramp from now until traditional retirement. So we've saved in our mind for traditional retirement. And that money is going to sit and grow in traditional retirement accounts. And we've started building our runway from you know now until 55 or 59, whatever traditional retirement is. And we need to finish that. 65, Kirsten. You're 65? stuck way too deep in the fire movement. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone retired at 35. I was like, what's traditional retirement? 28 these days? <laughs> 65. No, 65. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) So now it's uh, finishing that ramp. We're close. We're about a year and a half away. It might slow down a little bit just because I just left my job. And that was obviously an income source that we were counting on. But we have our business. And so it's to monetize that and ensure that we're getting the deals that we're wanting and finish off that ramp. Awesome. So has Julian left his job? Yeah, he left about a year and a half ago. So you two are both doing the entrepreneurship thing. We are. That had to bring up some scarcity stuff. It did. (laughs) It did. It's so funny. I speak from experience. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when he was ready to quit his job, I got like 24 hours notice. He was just like, yeah, I think I'm done. And I was like, okay, babe, whatever. I support you. (laughs) Endless optimism. (laughs) Yeah. Endless optimism. No plan. I was like on my breadwinner, like, I'm a hero. Like, I'm going to retire my man kind of thing. And then he left and I was like, we'll figure this out. So I was supposed to continue working traditionally for another year and a half. But when I decided that I was ready to leave early, he was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. (laughs) He had all these questions. (laughs) And they were the right questions to ask. Like, again, he is not out of pocket for asking, like, what are we going to do about health insurance and money? (laughs) Those are reasonable, rational questions. But I felt like he wasn't being supportive. I felt like he wouldn't just say, okay. And he was like, no, I just need to understand what the plan is. We can talk about a plan, but you can't just quit and leave. (laughs) So I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I guess that's not fair to call it scarcity, but (laughs) I definitely feel like he didn't come to me like with a plan to say, okay, you want to quit and here are like our options. It was kind of like, no, you need to figure, like we need to solve for all these things first. And it was like, no, we actually don't. Like we saved all of this money and we have all of this comfort to be able to do things like this. We just need to align on like what the next year looks like. And I'm curious too, sometimes when you make these big shifts, your expenses change too, right? You've got to pick up health insurance, but are there places that you can now spend less because you're not working traditionally? Oh, totally. So like my entire self-care <laughs> regimen can change. <laughs> that personal category. <laughs> that personal category can certainly reduce. And if I'm honest about some of the coping mechanisms that I had to deal with my high stress job, I'm sure our wine budget <laughs> will go down. <laughs> I'm just not as like, and maybe this is just because I've only been home for like a month, but I don't eat as much when I'm here as I did at work. Like I'm not so like, I'm very thoughtful and intentional about when I eat. It's because I'm hungry and not just because I need something to like keep my mouth busy or my hands busy while I, you know, tackle through another conference call. So I'm sure there are, it's it's too soon to tell. It's not like we're going to give up daycare. Like the boy is still going to go to school. Because <laughs> you guys left to be entrepreneurs. You didn't retire. Yeah, exactly. Right, so. Exactly. So like the big ones will still be here, mortgage and daycare. But 
there's probably certainly like gas and other things that will fall off. Makes sense. Awesome. All right. So someone who's early in this journey, right? Who's still playing the game of like, I'm going to out earn this. (laughs) It's no big deal. (laughs) What are the first steps? Do you encourage everyone to go to cash or do mental work first? What comes first? I think cash is a good idea. If you have a challenge with like staying within a budget, it's just a very real way of keeping you honest about how much money you actually have. If staying within a budget is not your issue, but saving is your issue, then I would say that the first step is to create an emergency fund or something that challenges your assumption that you can always out earn it because it's true until it's not. And I think the news around the pandemic of COVID-19 and coronavirus right now, there are a lot of people that were counting on money and income from events or from travel or from, you know, if you're a small business that just doesn't come all the time. Like you just can't predict. And so there has to be some way to kind of protect yourself from your from yourself, from your own toxic positivity <laughs> to make sure that, you know, if something happens, you're not completely taken off guard. That makes sense. That's a good place to start. I love the emergency fund. Even if your goal is getting out of debt, I think having something set aside is just a good idea so that you're not feeling completely stuck and overwhelmed when something happens, not if something happens. There's always those little surprises. Yes. And so since we're talking about security this month, do you feel more secure now in the way you manage money than you did before? I do. I do. And a lot of it has just happened um, (laughs) now, now that I've quit. Like I needed to like quit to really understand that the money is there to be used to better your life, Mm -hmm. to engage with your life. Like I'm now starting to understand the purpose of like a safety net that you create yourself because you control it. It's not one that is dependent on somebody else feeling like saving you that day or their financial situation. Like I know exactly how much money I have and I have already created like a bare bones budget where it's like, all right, let's say things just go to hell, go for the worst. Okay. <laughs> like how can we live off of, you know, significantly less? What are the things that we would cut back entirely? And so I just feel like I have flexibility, which gives me a sense of security because I, I control it. I love that. Like some of those questions of, okay, what would we do if everything went wrong are scary things to think about. But then once you put yourself through it, there's so much calm in, okay, I know what I would do and it's not going to keep me up at night anymore. I know I have options. Yes. There's something comforting about playing through your worst case scenario. And it's like, okay, well, if my worst case scenario is that like I have to pull my son out of daycare and he gets to spend all day with me and maybe we sell the house and go somewhere, like that's still a great scenario. I mean, it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's It's ideal. (laughs) It's fine. It's still a fine, (laughs) it's still a fine scenario. Oh, I love it. All right. Last thing. I want to change gears on you a second because I really want to talk about this. You talk about your mission being creating more black millionaires. And I think that's, we don't know the topic of the book yet, but we're going to probably have a lot of that in there. Yeah. So talk about why that's your main focus and how your guys' platform is changing the narrative. Yeah. I think it's because black people and the labor model in the United States has a really complicated history. That was putting it super diplomatically. That's my like avoiding trolls online version. (laughs) Okay. But I was like, what is she saying? (laughs) There are like all these pressures for black people 
now, especially now, to try and like out earn and rewrite history. And none of that is working. <laughs> like there is no evidence to suggest that if you work really hard, you'll be compensated well and you'll be promoted. Like if that were the case and the racial wealth gap wouldn't be as wide as it is and still growing, there would be more black CEOs. We wouldn't still be talking about representation matters because we'd be represented. Like there's no evidence that doing the same things is going to net you the same result as the person you might have heard that advice from. Mm -hmm. And so what we're saying is that there are alternatives. There are absolute alternatives if you can just engage with your personal finances differently. If you can stop spending on the things that you're spending on now and invest wisely and create new streams of income and create a path off of the corporate, you know, ladder, then you can be just as successful. We believe that the principles of financial independence will create more Black millionaires than corporate America ever would. But when we say that, people look at us like, there's no way. It's like, have you looked at the math yet? Like, these odds are, like, you have a better chance of making it into the NBA than you do of being like the CEO of some big corporate company. Yeah. So how can white people like me be better allies, right, for this? Because I think that we've seen, we've seen what the statistics are, most of us have, and how can we help? I think it's a matter of listening. I, I don't know that there's a specific action that you can take. I'm sure there is, but I can't think of one outside of the context of a specific situation. But I would encourage more white people to immerse themselves in Black spaces so that they really hear how Black people think and feel about situations. And even in the workplace, like without being you know, awkward or <laughs> weird, <laughs> like making sure to acknowledge that when something is happening that we know unequivocally affects Black people, that you say that you're there, that you say that you're sorry, that you're not like shying away from the topic so that you understand that these things are pervasive and, you know, they affect us. That's great. Yeah, I think that's a good Good method. I think one of the things I've learned over the last several years is not to get defensive too, right? Like listen to what people are telling you. Yes. <laughs> and that goes in all spaces, right? Anyone that has just different experiences than you is the power of just listening to people's stories. Absolutely. All right, Kirsten, before we let you go, we're going to move to a sillier topic and we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. Okay. So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we pull a question out of the magical hat and it reveals something about you. It contains a number of random questions about money, motherhood, and life. Are you ready for your question? I'm ready. What is your favorite thing to spend money on? Ooh, favorite thing to spend money on. If I say wine, it's going to make me a lush. <laughs> it's somewhere between wine and jewelry. Oh, no, no, no. I have a new one. I have a new one. It's not wine or jewelry. It's travel. There you go. It's travel. I just don't do it often, so I forgot that it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> what was the last trip you went on? For pleasure, it was Jamaica last summer. We went like on a quick trip to Austin, like, last fall, but it wasn't a family trip. So family travel. Family travel with toddlers. I know it's brave. hard, but the, <laughs> my son does really well in Jamaica. I don't know why. Like, I think it's just the island vibe. Who doesn't vibe. do really well? <laughs> <laughs> it's just the island vibe. Like he goes on straight island time and he did great. Plus we were there for like a week and a half. That helps the adjustment too, right? When you're trying to do the two day tw trips with kids, they're just like, oh, what impossible. the hell, man? Yeah, <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> All right, Kirsten, where can people find you and follow up and learn more about your platform? 
Yes, we're at richandregular.com. And then we also have an Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, all at Rich and Regular. Awesome. And mamas, that'll be all linked in the show notes to this episode. And Kirsten, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I always love getting a chance to chat with Kirsten about her story and her mission. She is so incredibly honest about her own journey. It's really no surprise to anyone how much she's been able to achieve and how many people she inspires. Truly one of my favorite people. I'm so glad she started her financial journey and feels free to speak her truth now. As always, I've rounded up my top three takeaways from today's episode, which I'll admit was difficult. I think Kirsten taught us a lot of important lessons today, and I know that in this environment, we all have a lot of questions. But here's what I think we all need to remember. First, creating a personal safety net puts you in control. Kirsten's tip for everyone starting their financial journey was to begin with an emergency fund. Important advice that I'm sure we've all heard before. But her point that it's a safety net that you control is such a crucial nuance. I think facing the COVID-19 outbreak and concerns about a recession is reminding us all how quickly things can change and how scary it is to not have your own safety net. You can tell yourself that you could just work overtime or pick up a side hustle when you need to fill a gap, but right now that doesn't seem as possible. So your goal doesn't have to be full financial independence like it is for Kirsten and her husband, but every bit of safety net you can create, an emergency fund, getting out of debt, creating multiple streams of income, puts you more in control of your future. If you haven't done that up to this point, you do have options even within the current framework. Calling and negotiating your bills, revisiting your budget to make a plan to save more if you can, applying for unemployment if you lost a job. But take this small piece of silver lining that you now know firsthand how important your financial safety net is and that you can improve in the future. Keep learning about your money, keep analyzing your own money mindset and hangups, and prepare yourself to build or solidify your foundation as the situation fully plays out. Second, make things vivid and real. Kirsten and I laughed about her freezing her credit cards into a big block or going to pen and paper and writing her future self letters to keep herself accountable. And maybe from the outside or in retrospect, that feels a little dramatic. But money is so ingrained in our day-to-day lives and our habits that sometimes we need to bring it to the forefront. We need to be a little dramatic to snap ourselves out of our version of normal. Find a way to make your changes real for you. You don't need to stick to these methods forever, just like Kirsten ultimately melted her credit cards and went to Mint for her budgeting practice. Yet you do need to identify what will motivate you and how you can stay accountable. Change is hard, no doubt, but you can do it. And finally, third, remember there is no final destination. It's all part of the journey. Kirsten said this with a laugh and called it kind of depressing, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's actually really freeing. There is no point where you have to be perfect with any of this. We're all always learning and growing, finding new ways to connect with what we want and how we want our money to work for us. If we can get ourselves to a place where we embrace the journey, that there will always be something to work on, even though those things do eventually get more fun, like Kirsten deciding what house to buy or when to leave her job to pursue her passion, I think we find ourselves less frustrated. We're prepared to engage with our mindset and our money. We're ready to grow. A little bit better than yesterday is all we can ask, mamas. You've got this. I want to thank Kirsten again for joining me on the show and telling her story. If you learned something today, I'd super, super appreciate if you hit the subscribe button in your podcast app so you don't miss future episodes and if you share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to see the full show notes with links to Rich and Regular and Kirsten's social media platforms or to download your free financial emergency preparedness checklist, visit us at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Kirsten, K-I-E-R-S-T-E-N. 
keep talking money mamas i'll see you next time <laughs>